0: Coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast. So before COVID even hit, we had this, you know, three-part problem with access, with affordability, and with quality. And then into that crisis comes COVID and really pushed the system almost to the brink of catastrophe. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, Mission Readiness National Director, Ben Goodman.
1: Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm Ben Goodman, National Director of Mission Readiness. Today, we're going to talk about the so-called Build Back Better Act that recently passed the U.S. House and is awaiting a vote in the Senate. Uh, the bill is is a massive um, package that contains a lot outside of mission readiness's charge and purview but as you know and as we're going to discuss today mission readiness for a long time has supported investments in early care and education programs that are shown to help mitigate the major barriers to enlistment uh, the bill would put a, a significant investment into programs uh, across the country that that help prepare kids for success and we're going to talk today about why we're supportive of those specific provisions in the bill why we feel they're necessary now um, and and the broader kind of context of where this bill is heading um and and uh even more so looking forward to a great discussion with me today is uh the mission readiness team and and our great research director from council for a strong america um so uh i'll hand it over to everybody to introduce themselves and we'll jump into the conversation
0: hi i'm sandra bishop the Chief Research Officer for Council for Strong America.
2: Hi, I'm Megan Chesky and I'm the Deputy Director for Mission Readiness.
3: I'm Abby Ware. I'm an Associate Director with Mission Readiness.
4: And I'm John Conley. I'm an Associate with Mission Readiness.
1: So let's just uh, gonna have a, a, a free-for-all today so folks can jump in. Um, they may talk over each other, but uh, it's, I, I, let's make this collaborative. So let's start by kind of reminding listeners, our members who probably know this intimately, but I know we have folks um, across the country and all over the world who listen to our podcast. Um, So uh, let's start by talking about setting the the table. Let's talk about the context. What is the problem that our country faces relative to military recruiting?
2: So what we talk a lot about at Mission Readiness is that currently 71% of 17 to 24 year olds are ineligible for military service, primarily for three major reasons, including they're too overweight or obese, have lacking education, or have a history of crime or drug abuse. And so that is a huge portion of the population that isn't eligible to serve, and improving upon different programs that can help mitigate those three areas, particularly childcare, early education, and nutrition programs is really critical in order to address the overall problem.
1: So I, I never, when I learned about mission readiness, um, before I came to mission readiness, learned about the focus, I never would have equated early childhood education. Um, child care is key to kind of reversing these train, trends and, and uh, trying to kind of get these barriers and societal trends under control. But uh, the research is, is pretty overwhelming and, and pretty clear. Um, Sandra, can you walk us through kind of early childhood investments? Uh, or or why investments in early care and education can, can really help to start to turn these trends around, contribute to turning these trends around, and prepare kids for success in the military or whatever they choose to do in life?
0: Sure. So in early childhood, children are really developing many of the social, emotional, and cognitive and early learning skills that are required for 21st century jobs, be those in the private sector or in the military. And early childhood is a period of unique brain development where really all of the foundation for future skills is being laid. And high quality early care and education programs improve kids functioning on a variety of measures that will help them as they move forward. Uh, Early childhood care and education improves academic performance, including high school graduation, which was mentioned by Megan as one of the, the barriers to military service. And it also reduces the risk that children will become involved in crime later on. Believe it or not, three in, what happens at age zero to three, zero to four can really impact behavior as far um, along in life as young adulthood and adulthood. Kids who participate in quality early education programs are more likely to enter kindergarten ready to learn, and that really sets them on a path to success. They're less likely to be held back in school. They're less likely to need special education, more likely to graduate high school. And they also show improved reading and math skills that are sustained throughout school. And then on the the behavior side, kids in quality early education learn self-control skills. We often hear about kids learning to use their words, and that's a way of setting them on the path to better behavior so that they're not disqualified for uh, crime or even substance abuse. On the physical fitness side, early care and education providers can help kids set healthy habits that can last a lifetime by serving healthy, nutritious meals in uh, childcare and preschool settings, and also just by ensuring that kids have access to the outdoors and have adequate time for physical activity. And these factors can reduce uh, kids' chances of becoming overweight or obese and just set them on the path to health.
1: Uh, Follow up on that, Sandra. So obviously the military recruiting trends we've seen have changed over the years. But, you know, a question I get when we're talking to prospective members sometimes or just other general public is, well, I didn't, I didn't go to a child care program and I turned out fine. I went into, can you tell us a little more about, about what, how would you respond to kind of that sort of, that sort of point of question?
0: Sure. Well, I would start by saying just the the world has changed, right? Two thirds of kids under the age of six have all available parents in the workforce. So parents just aren't home anymore. You know, my mom was was home with me back in the decades ago, let's say. And that's just not true anymore. Often both parents are working or if you have a single parent, that parent is working. And so early childhood settings really are um, the place where a lot of kids spend a lot of their time. And we have to remember that's not only centers, it's also family-based child care. The majority of kids in the U.S. are in home child care centers.
1: Thank you. I, I think that's such a, an important Important piece of context. Um, you know, we've seen we've seen changes in society, in, in over the last few decades, we've seen a change in how the military structured over the last few decades. So when we talk about, you know, we talk a lot at mission readiness about the fact that when the military moved from um, an, uh, to an all volunteer force after the end of the draft, um, all of a sudden, you know, there was a need for the military to address childcare in 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 its own uh, among service members, and the military did a, a pretty significant job pretty significant overhaul that mission readiness points to a lot it's not a perfect system but um you know the military was among the first to realize in a changing society it's really important that we ensure that we have a, a, a great place for kids to go so that they can thrive but so that their parents can focus on the job and not have to worry about um about where their kids are during the day so um we, we we're obviously today talking about the um again we'll get to this in a sec, the early care uh, and education provisions um, in Build Back Better. Um, there are some nutrition provisions, um, you know, for example, there is an expansion of um, what's called the summary BT program. Um, Mission Readiness sees that as part of a solution, but we, we um, tend to advocate for um, uh, efforts to strengthen the Summer Meal Program, and that's been a key kind of plank for us. So we're not gonna talk about the nutrition provisions today. Our focus is on the the early care and education provisions. Um, but while we're talking about the, the whole picture here, um, I, I think it's always important that when we're talking about COVID-19 and what it's meant for kids and, and families, um, you know, to talk about the lack of available fresh and nutritious food. So, um, you know, we've all seen the pictures of red lines during the pandemic and um, read stories about food banks. But um, just, you know, since we're here, can somebody comment on how we've seen uh, families and children impacted by disruptions to fresh and nutritious food access in schools and other settings?
4: Um, yeah, Ben, I can jump in and talk on this. Um, I, and I think as you highlighted, there, there were issues before the pandemic, but what the pandemic did was just highlight for the entire country that there are major issues that need to be addressed. Um, one of the biggest things that occurred in the pandemic was that kids were not able to go to school. School is a place where children have access and get the fresh and nutritious foods that they need, whether it's breakfast, lunch, and uh, sometimes, you know take home meals for the weekend or snacks after school, and suddenly not being in school, they ha- they didn't have the opportunity. To get access to those so school districts and communities had to find new ways to deliver those meals um, a lot of school districts switched over to the summer model um, where they would have congregate food settings or delivery methods and um, uh, th- those issues continue to persist even after the pandemic and i think the pandemic has been an opportunity for us to really tackle these issues in a in a way that can bring about new changes and as you mentioned with the the provisions in the Build Back Better legislation. We don't view them as a final solution. We view them as just a temporary patchwork, but hopefully we can continue on the path to more robust solutions for the future.
1: Thank you, John. I think that's an important reminder and something that we've talked a lot about on the Mission Readiness podcast and with our members over the months. Um, One thing that that we have been talking about too, I don't think as much on the podcast, but really with our members across the country, particularly through the last state legislative session, is the impact that COVID nineteen, social distancing requirements to mitigate the spread and so forth, have had on um, the childcare sector? Um, you know, I i I'm, I find it pretty compelling. Um, everything I've read um, about why this sector has really been disproportionately harmed compared to um, a lot of other parts of the economy. Sandra, you've authored a number of reports over the last year or so on the impact of COVID-19 on the early care and education sector. Can you talk a little bit about some of the trends that we've seen and, and, and why there's been such an impact on this part of the economy?
0: Yes, yeah, so I, I think to get a good sense of what's happened during COVID, we have to start with what the situation was before COVID. And in a word, childcare was already in crisis. Childcare has a business model that just doesn't work the service is such a labor intensive service to provide the parents just can't afford what it costs to offer quality care you need really low ratios of children to teachers in childcare and early education, particularly for infants and toddlers. If you go to an elementary school, you'll see typically one teacher with anywhere from 20 to even 35 kids per teacher. In early education, those ratios have to be so much lower. For preschool kids, ages three and four, you're talking 10 kids per teacher. For infants and toddlers, it's more like three or four kids per teacher. So given the the level of labor intensity in the sector, the cost is really high. The average cost of child care in the country is about $9,000 per child per year. And that's even higher for infants and toddlers. In 30 states and in the District of Columbia, child care for an infant in a child care center is actually more expensive than in-state college tuition. So we hear a lot about the high cost of college. Child care is actually even more expensive. Um, before the pandemic and now, despite these high costs, child care providers are paid very low wages, otherwise the cost would be even higher than it is. The average salary for a child care provider is $27,000 per year, and if you compare that to a kindergarten teacher, it's $61,000 per year, so you can see a huge disparity there in um, the salary. And as a result of this, um, these low wages, there's a really high level of turnover in the childcare sector. Providers often leave the the system and go to find jobs in other sectors, even retail, where you can make um, a higher wage. And as a result of this turnover, there, there are a couple of impacts. One is that there's just a shortage of care across the country. There isn't the workforce to deliver the service. And then the other piece, it is is that it impacts childcare quality and early education quality, because kids need, especially young kids, need consistent, stable relationships with people to foster their development. So when you have this constant churn of workers, it can really impact the quality. Um, When we look at at access, 50% of Americans live in a childcare desert, and that's been defined as an area in which there are at least three kids for every licensed childcare slot. And in some areas, there's literally no, zero, infant and toddler care. So before COVID even hit, we had this three-part problem with access, with affordability, and with quality. And then into that crisis comes COVID and really pushed the system almost to the brink of catastrophe. When COVID first hit in spring of 2020, about 60% of providers across all types of early education closed. Um, Some of those were temporary, some ended up being permanent. Childcare centers were the hardest hit early in the pandemic because centers tend to serve larger groups of children. And so to prevent the spread, they were were often shut. And also parents reduced their demand for childcare centers just because they were wary of sending their kids to places where they'd be exposed to a lot of other kids. Family childcare homes, which typically serve smaller numbers of kids early in the pandemic were able to stay open more often. And they really are some of the heroes of the pandemic because as essential workers needed to go to work, often family childcare homes is where they put their kids to be cared for while they basically kept our economy going. But what happened as the, the pandemic progressed the family child care homes really started to drop out. A lot of them just could not sustain their business model. They operate on razor thin margins to begin with. And when you add reduced uh, group sizes or reduced capacity due to the social distancing requirements, you add in higher costs because now they have to buy masks and they have to buy all the cleaning supplies. Prices went up, income went down and some of them just could not uh, sustain their businesses. So as a result of all that, we have a real crisis in the childcare workforce. One in six uh, childcare workers have left the sector. It's about 167,000 jobs lost. So what has happened as the economy has reopened and states um, have started reopening their businesses, all of the problems that I mentioned before around access and affordability and quality have just been exacerbated. And we're really at a point now where the childcare crisis is hindering our economic recovery.
2: Yeah, and this crisis, particularly before COVID-19, was something that our members really had the opportunity to see firsthand. They, throughout the country, have gone to child care centers, talked to educators, and even parents in who have children that attend some of those centers, and heard this firsthand. So they knew before, when we were still able to kind of travel very regularly, what this crisis looked like. And now what you're saying, Sandra, is it's gotten even worse. So really important now to address it.
1: So let's turn to kind of action to to shore this up. And I know some of our members were um, particularly active in the state level this year and urging use of certain rescue funds and and, and other efforts um, made available um, to to assist here. What is the role of our state and federal leaders in, in fixing this crisis?
3: There are a lot of programs across the country that exist at the state level in North Carolina, for example, we've been extremely active around child care, and there's this great program called Smart Start that really facilitates a lot of the child care programs throughout the state, and it's a huge resource for the child care sector more broadly. So that's one example of programs that already exist in a more tangible way. You know, I think when we talk about child care, it often sounds very abstract, even though we know that there are real businesses that exist, but we don't really know how they are connected to state and federal level funding. So a lot of what we see as an opportunity is if there is an opportunity to provide funding at the federal level to the states, that is something, especially for childcare where it's in such a crisis right now, that is something that really could make a difference for kids at the youngest years of their lives in order to make a positive impact for them down the road, whether that's so that they have the education to join the military, to pass the entrance exam. They have even the fitness, you know, a lot of childcare programs do provide some level of physical activity to keep kids moving. And that can affect how they really, how their kind of behavior develops down the road. So it really does, it really can be, childcare can be affected from the top down. So in terms of what federal leaders can do, in terms of this package, they can take advantage of the funding being made available to high quality or early education programs. And from their state leaders, whether it's the governor or state legislatures can then decide, do they want to accept parts of the package? Do they wanna accept all aspects of the package in terms of the state level funding that they can then distribute out to programs. And we see that as really an important partnership between state and federal governments working together to ensure that as a whole across the country, the childcare sector is honestly given a better chance itself so that then the kids can benefit from it as well.
1: So let's talk about this um, big federal package. Um, This is, I think, a good time to talk about what's in Build Back Better. And look, a lot of what's in this bill is far outside of mission readiness's um, scope. You know, there's um, there are climate change measures in the bill. There are tax credits for e-bikes. There are conservation um, efforts, um, none of which is in our charge or our focus at mission readiness. Um, Unfortunately, uh, the way Congress has has, um, chosen to take up um, policy ideas in recent years, um, in recent maybe the the last few decades, I guess we could say at this point, is by just folding ideas into large legislative vehicles. Um, I don't like it. I don't think, um, I can't speak for all of my colleagues, I don't think they like it personally. Um, And I've spoken to a ton of our members who are, um, who really hate this particularly way of going about and doing business. But two kind of key things here. The first is, it seems like Senate leadership is um, pretty hell bent on passing something. Um, They want something, the political, rationale and reasoning and um, everything else points to passing something and as an organization that's focused on um you know expanding access to early care and education helping kids have access to to good quality child nutrition programs um and helping those kids avoid crime our charge is to move our priorities across the finish line so it's not a perfect comparison but you know i would um my mind goes to thinking about the appropriations process or a, a bill like the 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 ndaa you know um lots of folks have certain priorities in that piece of legislation that crosses the finish line and there may be things that they disagree with it but unfortunately this is just the process we have right now and i don't think based on um the the case that um, you know, Sandra and my colleagues have, have really raised out here about the urgency in standing up and preventing a collapse of the childcare sector in this country. Um, it's it's critical to get these specific provisions across the finish line. So you know to be clear, at mission readiness, we do not have um any stance, and we don't care to have a stance on some of the other things that are in the bill because it's just not our it's it's not um, what we were created to do, but we are, we see whatever vehicle Congress wants to pass um, relief for the child care sector, however they want to do it. We wish they'd pull it out and do it as a standalone, but but they're not going to they're not going to do that. Um, this is the best chance of providing relief. And that's why um, we're behind some investments in in investments that I'd add have historically been bipartisan um, to make those investments in, in programs, help states um, where Republicans and Democrats have come together to to provide relief and and strengthen these these programs and access to these programs over the years. So um, it's tough. I hate the process, um, but we can't leave these significant bipartisan investments um, but behind at this time. So um, as I mentioned at the top, uh, the bill passed the house a few weeks ago, but, but where does the legislation stand at the time that we're recording this? I can take that
4: one, Ben. Um, so right now, as you said, the I think it was November nineteenth that passed the House of Representatives. Um, the Senate's currently de, um, deliberating it. They have a very different process uh, than the House, so um, the time frame is not exactly set yet as to when they're going to pass it. And we're recording this on Friday, December tenth. I think the goal, and some in the Senate, is to have this done before they uh, leave for the Christmas holiday. But um, that's remains to be seen if that's possible. Um, once it, if it were to pass the Senate, uh, it would go to President Biden and then President Biden would uh, most likely sign it, but he would have the decision to sign it or not. Um, and then after that, each state would need to determine itself how they're going to use the funds, if they're gonna use all of the funds or parts of the funds that are made available through the legislation. So um, once, it, once it passes an assigned into law, that's really not the end of the road for what's, uh, what's in this bill.
1: And, you know, I think it's important to add, right, negotiations can continue to go back and forth. So it's possible that we could see more in, in, in the process, another back and forth. And that's why, again, we are trying to raise the flag here and say these investments are important. Um, whatever happens to the rest of it, not, not, not our concern. Um, what is our concern is making sure that these specific investments do not get uh, pulled out on the chopping block. Uh, so what are we doing about it? here at Mission Readiness.
3: So Mission Readiness members have been active on this issue for over 10 years. At this point, I guess it's closer to 12, particularly around early care and education. We have written numerous sign-on letters um, that have been sent to Congress, to the president on a wide variety of topics. And right now we think that there is a critical opportunity to, for Congress and for the president, to hear from members so members are adding their names to a national sign on letter that we currently have circulating um that we currently have circulated excuse me and that really we think are important we think it's very important to talk about which parts of this legislation that we are supporting so that's what that sign-on letter is intended to provide is what are the elements of the legislation that we think are critical to the mission that we're working to advance, which is to ensure more kids are eligible for military service, if that's the path that they choose to go down, or they're just better prepared to succeed in life more broadly.
1: No, well said. Well, any any final comments here from our, our panel um, on, on the need to, to really shore up this sector or, um, why it is that Mission Readiness is working to, to get these provisions over the finish line. All right. Well, with that, um, thank you to my my guests today. Thank you to our listeners. I'm Ben Goodman, and this has been the Mission Readiness podcast. Thank you to Dr. Sandra Bishop and my colleagues at Mission Readiness for joining us today. Today's show was written and produced by Abby Ware. For more about Mission Readiness, Council for Strong America, Where to find an archive of every episode of the Mission Readiness Podcast, visit strongnation.org. A reminder to subscribe to the podcast, give us a positive review, and tell your friends about the program. The show is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for supporting our mission to help kids stay in school, in shape, and out of trouble.